Chocolate Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Rachel Matthews. This is the show where we look at a person's life, faith and testimony and it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free copy of the latest issue featuring interviews, features, news, reviews and much more, then head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. My guest today is Reverend Paul Cowley MBE who recently published a book called Thief, Prisoner, Soldier, Priest. It's the story of Paul's life. Paul grew up in Manchester amid the chaotic world of his alcoholic parents. His early exposure to heavy drinking, explosive arguments and the unnerving aggression of his father led him into homelessness and crime. By 17 years old, he found himself behind bars. At the beginning of the book, Paul asks himself a question. How does a man born into a dysfunctional family with very little formal education and subsequently a criminal record become a priest in the Church of England? Well, this is Paul's remarkable and touching story. My mum and dad were, um, were pretty dysfunctional characters. They did the best they could, obviously. My dad was from Toxteth in Liverpool, six foot four in his prime, an enormous character. One of those people that sort of um, was a centre of attraction when they walked in the room, but most of the time in a negative way. And my mum was from Birkenhead uh, in Cheshire. She was about five foot and she was, um, she was volcanic, really. They were both quite violent, not, not to me. Um, my dad to everyone else around him. My grandfather was a street fighter in Liverpool, earned his money that way. And my mum was um, violent verbally. You know, she was very sharp with her tongue. So... And they were both alcoholics uh, and both non-believers, no, no, no faith, no religion. So, you know, as a kid, you grow up with what your parents give you. So I grew up with no faith, I guess you could say, because it was irrelevant. Um, so brought up with two alcoholic parents, that, that's tricky. No, no siblings, um, half siblings that I found out I had later on in life. My mum had two children and my dad had one, but I didn't find that out till later on and didn't really have a relationship with him. So I always say I was a, you know, an, an only child, but I did have siblings, but we just never had a relationship with them at, at all. Um, so that was quite traumatic. And at 15, um, a couple of things happened really. One, I got expelled from school for, um, for truancy um, and I was bullied. I went to a comprehensive school in Manchester and it was, uh, you know, I was small, blonde haired, blue eyed, and it was just a, it was a nightmare. So I was always sort of running away. So I ended up getting expelled for truancy at 15 and at the same time got into an argument with my mum and dad. Uh, it was about drink or debt or, or women. My, my dad was a, a serial womanizer, really. I, I learned that early on. So there was a big argument. Uh, my dad went to hit my mum. I got in the middle. I got the clout that my, my mum was going to get. Big argument. And my father threw me out. And in my arrogance and my youth, I ran upstairs, grabbed the bag and slammed the door behind me. Um, that was in uh, Manchester. And then I realized about 100 meters out of the door, I didn't have anywhere to go really. So I was homeless in Manchester for a while. 
you talk about your, your mom and dad and that volatile relationship they had with one another. Did you feel loved by them in their own way during those formative years? Goodness, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I think I did. Let's put it that way. They, they, you know, they, they were violent and drinking, but, but not to me. You know, I wasn't abused and I wasn't beaten or anything like that. Um, but a few years ago, I went through a whole sort of case of therapy, which I don't mind admitting through, through various things, not about my mom and dad, but eventually they came up in therapy. And the therapist said to me, you, you were abused, Paul. I said, no, I wasn't. I, I, I wasn't. She said, you were abused emotionally or lack of emotion. We did this little experiment and I brought a load of photographs into the therapist and we put them on the floor of me and my youth. And she said, after 10 minutes, can you spot something? And I couldn't, but she showed me that there's a distance between me and my parents in every single photograph. Uh, and I hadn't, I hadn't realized that. So whether they did that on purpose or not, but there was a, there was a lack of being tactile. And I think that leads to a lack of sort of distance with emotion and feeling loved. You may think you love, but you need to feel and know that you love. So I don't think I was actually, I think they tried, but they were so dysfunctional. Their backgrounds are horrendous, you know? So when two people come together and they have a kid, they, they do the best they can, don't they really? They do. And I know you journey on with them both really to, to resolve some of the, those kind of yes. problems you had at the beginning. But um, I know within the book, and I know you, you refer to this, you had an experience with your dad where he taught you about trust using a war. And that must have been, if you could speak into that, that, that's such a difficult lesson to learn. And particularly at the time when you were being bullied at school, these were hard life lessons, weren't they? Your, your dad, in a way, was trying to teach you, I think. My dad was, uh, yeah, on reflection back, he, he put me on the wall, like, like you mentioned, and got me to jump into his arms. And it's a game we would play. I was probably about eight or nine. And, uh, and, and as I jumped into his arms, he would move further away. It becomes a game of trust and dare. It's quite exciting. And when I jumped at one point, when he was quite a way away, he just moved and I fell. Um, went back home, didn't speak much. My mum went ballistic. Uh, but I remember my dad saying to my mum, I wanted to teach him a lesson. I won't repeat everything they both said, but she said, lesson. He said, I wanted to teach him that he should never trust anybody because they'll always move away or let him down. So in his, you know, in a weird dysfunctional way, he was trying to help me because my dad was put in a home when he was five and his parents didn't want him. So he had to grow up with that. Then he went through military service and the war. And I can see what he was trying to do, but, but not a good way to do it too, because that stuck with me, you know, through my teenage years, through two marriages, two divorces, it's a nightmare. It just took a long time to get rid of that. You say that after um, an argument between your parents that you stepped in, that um, you left and you began to live a life on the streets. What happened then? How long were you on the streets and where did you go? Well, I, le I left home, like I described, and I wandered around for probably a day and a half or something, just trying to... Because with my parents being so dysfunctional, we never really had any friends because they fell out with everybody. Uh, drinking friends, but no, no real friends. So with no friends, there was no kids. So I had no, I had no mates to go to, no, no, uh, no couches to sleep on or anything. So I was on my own. 
Uh, and then the, I ended up in a in a bus shelter in Piccadilly, just sleeping rough. And long story short, um, someone kicked my foot halfway through the night and gave me a cup of tea. And it was this, um, I guess you'd call him a bit of a skinhead at the time, you know, late 70s, early 70s, mid 70s. And uh, um, long story, he, he took me into a squat and, and kind of looked after me, really, in, in a weird way. And in this empty house in Stockport, um, I moved in there with him, and and that's where I got involved in crime. We kind of everybody in the house did something, and I wasn't an angel, but I was never a criminal. And uh, and I learned how to how to steal, which I'm not proud of. But breaking into shops and then houses and then warehouses and then it was scooters and motorbikes and cars, and it was a bit like a Fagin, you know. All these characters brought these bits of kit into the house, and then someone would come in and and take them, and then some money would appear, and I'd get some money. And that's how I made a, a living um, for a while. But I, I wasn't very good at it because I constantly got caught by the police. I was a terrible thief. Uh, and that led to probation, bound over to keep the peace, fines, which I couldn't pay because I wasn't employed. And then in the end, the magistrates got fed up with me and gave me the biggest sentence that they could as a magistrate, which was 12 months um, to Risley, which was a detention centre, uh, which was really scary again on my own again. If we think to now as a priest, I'm wondering, looking back, where where was your sense of God? Had you heard of God at this time? Was there any sense of him being around you? You know, not that, not that I think God was avoiding me at all, but you know, my parents had such, a, such an influence on me in those early days. And even the school I went to called Edgerton Park um, in, in Manchester, there wasn't a lot of religious teaching. I, I remember there was, um, we just brought a thought into my head. I remember in school assemblies singing, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small. I remember that. And Lord of the Dance, those two. So I think there was a sense, I mean, God's everywhere now in retrospect, but you need to be introduced to him to know it's him. Otherwise you're strangers. So I, I think he was, well, I know now he was there all the time, but there was no sort of, there was no introduction. The school didn't do very well. Um, Risley, the detention centre, I never really met a, a chaplain in there. You know, no, no, I did six months. No one really sort of bothered with me, uh, which is not right. Not blaming anyone, but they're supposed to come and see you. And then my, you know, 17 years in the military, five regiments, Northern Ireland, the Falklands, I never met a padre either. You know, I don't, I think they must have been avoiding me or something, but I never had these weird conversations with a, a man or a woman of God. They just didn't come near me. So I don't think in retrospect, I was avoiding God. I just didn't know where he was. That's all. So you're in Risley and you spend six months there and you're released and it's your dad who comes to pick you up. Yes. Yes. Weird, because I had no relationship with them, obviously, with leaving. Um, and while I was in there, they didn't come to see me or, or anything. So when I was getting released, um, when I got to the reception, my father, my father was stood there, you know, dressed as he normally dresses. Um, and, and we didn't speak. We, we just walked out and I said, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not going back in there again. And I remember him saying to me, Oh, that's what I said. And I thought, what do you mean that's what you said? I didn't know you were in prison. I'd, 
anyway, never talked about it again. But later on, they're both dead now, my mum and dad. I found out that my father had had a spell in prison um, during his army career and different things. So I didn't know that about him. But a bit of a shock to him to, to meet me. We went home and then I left again. You left again and then you end up feeling called to join the army. Tell us about where that, how that came into your mind and what then you went to do. Well, I think the reason it was in my mind subconsciously, because my father was Irish guards. He was in the Irish guards during the war. Uh, and when I said, you know, he came to meet me dressed as he usually did, he always had a blazer an Irish guards military badge and, and a tie and a trilby. That's how he used to dress all the time. And there was lots of sort of military artifacts around the house growing up as a kid, but he never talked about it much. So I think subconsciously it was in my brain. And then one day when I was, um, I was driving a, a truck, a furniture van during the day and working in a bar at night, living in a bedsit in a place called Didsbury, I drove past a poster in Manchester uh, that said, do you want a life of adventure? And I had two guys skiing on it and, you know, it looked really nice. And it said, if you do, join the British Army. So I just drove this truck to a place called Fountain Street in Manchester where it was a, an Army careers office. And, and I walked in. Um, I can't believe I did it now after being in the military. I just walked in and said to a Sergeant Major, the stuff on the poster with the skiing and everything, I quite like to do that. Where do I sign up? So um, he sort of smirked and sat me down and had an interview and uh, eventually he said, where have you been? And I told him I've been to Risley and been in trouble and I'm trying to keep my head down now. And he said, oh, can't really do anything about that. It's quite a recent criminal offence and um, sorry, son. And I said, is that it? He said, yeah, that's it. Shook my hand. And as I walked away, I looked at him and he kind of winked at me and said, but you never know if you keep trying, kid. So I thought, what does that mean? So long story short, I won't bore you, but for six months, I went back every single week. Same conversation, same wink, same you never know, son. And in the end, uh, of about six months later, I sort of stropped into this Sergeant Major's desk. They all knew me in there by then. And I said, look, can you, can you not do the winking thing and, and do this and tell me you never know because you're just leading me on. Can I get in the military or not? Then he took me around the back. I was interviewed by a, an officer, a major, uh, and basically he said, we've been watching you for the last six months, son. You're, you're pretty determined to get in, aren't you? I said, I, yeah, I've got nothing else. I've, I've got nowhere to go. So I was interviewed by this major, and uh, after a lot of persuasion, I think, on my behalf, I was accepted into the British Army for training, and it was one of the most exciting days of my life, 27th of January, 1976, Fountain Street in Manchester. And I, in retrospect, when I look back, the reason I was so excited is one, I had a job. But you know what? It was the first time that I think someone really took a chance on me and saw something in me that I didn't even know I had. And, and God rest that man, wherever he is now, that major saw something and took a chance on me, really. And, and it completely saved my life, the military, saved my life. So tell me a little bit about your experience in the military and the places that you served while you were there and the friends that you made. I made a lot of friends, but I was, um, and I did well in the military. I joined uh, a regiment called 49 Field Regiment, which was um, in a, a heavy regiment, which is a tank gun regiment. And I joined them in a place called Hohner in Germany. And it was really exciting. And 
I just seemed to flourish in the army. It brought out all the skills that I didn't know I had. I realized I was quite fit. I didn't know that I was a good runner. I was quite good at leadership, map reading, weaponry. Uh, I became a sniper, so I was a very good shot. I didn't know any of that. And, uh, and I did really well. And then I got to my regiment and then I got promoted uh, to a Lance Bombardier, one stripe. And then I was anxious for more um, promotion. So I moved around a lot from regiment to regiment, five different regiments. So, so I did have friends, um, but not like most military people will say they've had friends for most of their military career. Mine were scattered all over the place. And that was kind of my character because even though I did really well in the military and I got promotion quite quickly um, and did Northern Ireland in the 70s and uh, the Falklands uh, campaign when that came on, I volunteered for all that stuff. My personal life was a complete nightmare, uh, relationship-wise. So when I got accepted into the army, did my basic training, uh, I had to get married. I said to my sergeant in training, can I take my girlfriend with me? He goes, no, son, you can take your wife with you, but you can't take a girlfriend. So I thought I'd better get married. So we got married really quickly. We've been going out for a while, uh, and then we got married. Really, she didn't know what was going on. I just, I just pushed everything. Uh, got out to Germany, got married uh, about a year into the relationship. It wasn't going well. I was taking on the characteristics of my father, really. From being bullied at school, I learned self-defense and boxing. So I was never bullied again. But we know where that goes if it's not controlled. And then relationship-wise, I was drinking. I was womanizing. It was So the marriage wasn't good after a year. So I thought the best thing to do, I heard some people chatting saying, you have a child. If you have a child, it brings the marriage together. Exactly. So we did that. Um, and, and it worked for a little while, but when my son Clinton was three, I couldn't handle the responsibility of being a dad, trying to be a husband, trying to be responsible for somebody. I just couldn't do it. So I got divorced. I was on my own, different regiment again, another move on my own for a while. Didn't like being on my own, married again. 18 months later, another, another divorce. And, and, and that was my life, really. It was, the military career was fantastic. I loved it. I was doing really well. I ended up as a, on promotion as a staff sergeant. But, you know, two marriages, two divorces, almost an alcoholic, and with no sustainable relationships, really. That, that was um, a sad character, really. A, a bad and sad character. That's what I ended up like. And Paul, you, you applied to join the SAS while you were there. Were you successful? <laughs> um, I did. I did. Um, I mean, the ultimate sort of top of being a soldier is this special air service. You know, there's lots of other organizations and I've tried a few, but, you know, the, it's every ambi ambition for a soldier to be in the special forces. So, um, as I said, I was quite fit. I was quite good at military skills and everything. And someone suggested that maybe I should have a go at going what's called selection. Um, so I did. I went through um, all that stuff, pre-selection, got selected for that, did selection. And I was about five or six weeks into it. And um, there's a bit more about it in the book if people want to know uh, about the selection process. But it, it's pretty tough, to say the least. And I remember one day, and you're always on your own. And I remember one day walking in the hills in Wales somewhere um, after being out for about five hours, about another five hours to go. I fell over and I just stumbled and I fell into this little pool of water. And I remember lying there thinking, what on earth am I doing? 
you know, what, 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 what am I doing? And so I got myself back up again. I got to the next checkpoint and I said to the, um, the DS directional staff there that I'd had enough. Um, I won't say what he said, but he was encouraging, which they're not always, because I was doing better than I thought on the course. And he said, go on, crack on. I won't, I won't listen to what you said. And I said, no, I've had enough. And, uh, Eventually, I, I went back to the um, to Sterling Lines in Hereford, and I was debriefed. I was told off for wasting time and everything. But the reason I went for that is this constant restlessness that I had in me, that wanted to achieve something or be something, or be recognised for something, and, and never feeling that I ever did it. So, so I didn't pass selection, um, but in my mind, I didn't fail it. I chose to leave it. Uh, and I'm really glad I did. And I write in the book in a chapter called uh, I Vow for Thee, My Country. I talk about that experience and some of the men that I met in that organization. And they are extraordinary. And, and it's not about brawn. It's not about strength. It's not about speed. It's about an attitude of mind. And I just didn't have it. So, you know, I wouldn't have got in probably. And I'm really glad I didn't. But that was just another journey. And I came back from there and I went to another regiment. Then I volunteered for some just constantly on the move in, in different parts. And eventually I ended up in the Army Physical Training Corps, another specialist uh, group of physical training instructors. I did a year's course and I was selected and I was successful at that and stayed in that for um, just over four and a half years. And then you heard from your mom. Your mom got back in touch with you and she, she wasn't did. very well. No, I mean, it's... Um, a long story short, I hadn't seen my mum really since I left home or my parents. I wasn't really interested in them, and I'm sure vice versa. And then um, because I was a skiing instructor, one of the regiments I was with uh, asked me if I'd go to Switzerland for three months doing skiing. You know, who's going to refuse that? And at the same time that happened, weirdly, my mother got in touch um, with me uh, which frightened the life out of me, to be honest, because I then had this new girlfriend, um, Amanda. Um, Amanda's my wife now. Amanda wrote the book, actually, uh, which took us five years to put together. Uh, we were living together, and I got this message that my mum wanted to see me anyway. We went to see her, long story short. She said, I'm thinking of selling my cottage, which was in Manchester, a little house, and coming living near you. I said, whoa, whoa, just, just, just take it easy a little bit. Uh, and in the end, I said, look, I'm going away for three months. Why don't you come and stay in my house, see what the area is like? I was living in a place called Nuneaton near Coventry. And I said, um, come and stay in there. And when we come back, we'll chat. I went off skiing. She moved in. And that was the end of that. And then into the tour, um, I was in Austria, I think, skiing some championships. The army got in touch with me and basically said, your mum's not well, she's had an accident, um, and we think you should go back. I said, not really, I don't, I don't want to go back, to be honest. I'm all right skiing. And then I got another call saying, you need to go back, compassionate leave. So me and Amanda, I took Amanda with me, my girlfriend, we drove back, and my mum was in hospital. Um, and really, she had cancer. She'd collapsed on the street, gone to the doctors, been admitted into hospital. She was a ch They were both chain smokers, really, and... I had three days with my mum and then she died. She died in my arms, actually. She was tiny by then and I didn't know what to do. I was just angry, I think, very angry because I hadn't had her. 
then she comes back and then she dies. So it was, it was just an awful time. Anyway, she died. I buried her um, and, and tried to forget about it really. She had all the stuff in our house because uh, she was living in there. I put it all in bin bags and gave it to Oxfam. Uh, and, and in it, I found a Bible. And uh, I didn't have a Bible. And in the back of it, it had, um, it had a Manchester code, 0161 at the time, and I knew that was Manchester, uh, and some writing in it. So I phoned this number and I said, who are you? Uh, and what are you doing in the back of this Bible? And how do you know my mother? And the woman at the end said, oh, I know your mother, Brenda. She goes to our church. I said, no, 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 my, my mum did, didn't do church. Oh, yeah, no, your mum became a Christian two years ago. And that Bible you've got was presented to her from her home group. I said, what? Anyway, I said, that must be lies or something because, anyway, my mother's dead and thank you very much. And I hung up. Uh, and then I couldn't get this Bible out of my head. And I kept looking through it. And as I looked through it, I had all writings and pen marks. And inside the Bible were some pictures of me. And it was really upsetting. It was upsetting me now. Because I thought, what's she doing with pictures of me? And what's the Bible? And what's this God stuff? Anyway, I couldn't get it out of my head. And I said to Amanda, I'm going to see what my mum was into. So I, I just went to lots of churches. And I didn't have very good experiences. I wasn't, um, I wasn't the best person to walk into church and I tried different things and um, it was just, it was just weird. I just, I, that was my, I just wanted to find out what had happened to my mother. And if she was a Christian, why on earth didn't she tell me before she died? So that's, I was left again, roaming around looking for this God character that had got my mum, this five foot alcoholic woman from Birkenhead it was now a Christian. What do you do with that? You know. And I'm not sure how much later it is. I know it was 1993 that you then received a postcard, and that really was the the turning point that changed your life. Yeah. Well, when you said before, Rachel, was God around? Do you know what? He's always been around me, us. But you need to be introduced. So with that thing about my mum and the Bible and the writing and the phone call. That was an introduction, I think. But I still didn't know who I was talking to. <laughs> and then um, I left the army. I did nearly 17 years. Um, I left the PT Corps. It was great. I left, moved in with my girlfriend, got a job as a fitness instructor, personal trainer, doing all right. And then one day I got, um, I got this postcard out the blue. Uh, and it arrived with all the mail. And uh, when I turned it over, uh, it was a postcard, you know, like this. I just turned it over and it had on the back, I've become a Christian. You need to marry that woman you're living with. Jesus loves you. Come and see me. And on the front was this biblical scene of like a, a shepherd with a crook and an old sheep around him. And the person who sent the card had put a ring of pen, a circle around two of the sheep and written you and me. And I thought, what? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> And then when I got to the bottom of the card, the signature on the bottom absolutely made me feel sick because it was, the signature was Eric Martin. And Eric Martin was my senior instructor in the PT Corps. Now I did a year's course. There's 118 of us started and 18 of us finished. Uh, two people ended up in wheelchairs and one person died. 
And this senior instructor was a complete nightmare, psychopath, horrible, horrible man. Um, and just made my life a misery for 12 months. And I hated him. So when I saw his signature on the bottom, I thought, goodness me, the psychopath has now got this Christian stuff, whatever that is, and he's got my address. <laughs> so I threw the card to the side and Amanda said to me, are you going to go and see him? I said, no, I hate the bloke. Why would I go and see him? He's an idiot. No. Anyway, I guess my macho side got the best of me and I went to see him and I spent three days with him. And he'd become a Christian in Hong Kong working with the Gurkhas. Had this complete life change. He was an army boxer, still a tough character. Uh, I still didn't like him. But for three days, he talked to me about the Bible. He told me a piece of scripture in Jeremiah that God has a good and perfect plan for you, you know, to prosper you. You know, he told me about um, the passage in Romans that, you know, through our suffering, we develop perseverance and perseverance character. And then we get hope. And he went on about me being able to be a good dad. I could be a good husband. I could be a man of character. God's got this plan. He can use his skills. And he went on and on. And on the last night, he walked me to my uh, room in the science mess. I said good night. And he gave me a piece of paper. And he said, I'll see you in the morning. And as I got ready for bed, I looked at the piece of paper and it was a piece of scripture. I didn't know at the time, but it was a tract. And, uh, and I looked at it and I, I couldn't quite make sense of it. So I sat down on the bed and I, and I read it. And it was a piece of scripture out of Matthew, um, Matthew, 22, Matthew 20, verse 13, I think it is. And it says, um, the king said to his servants, take this man and bind him hand and foot and throw him into the darkness where there'll be a great deal of wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it absolutely frightened the life out of me. All I had in my head was these gnashing of teeth. I had this dark alley, this claustrophobic feeling. I had this wailing sound in my head. And I just couldn't sleep all night. I was terrified. And halfway through the night, I got up and I was in a sweat and I didn't know what to do. And in my head came this image of a couple of kids praying where I, I have no idea. And I got on my knees and I just said, God, if you're there, I don't want the gnashing of teeth and tried to sleep. I didn't sleep. Got up for breakfast, went to see uh, Eric in the, in the mess, having breakfast. He was there. I walked up to him and he just said to me, how did you sleep? I won't say what I said to him, but I said, I didn't sleep very well. And he said, what did you do? And I said, well, I don't know what I did. You gave me that thing with the gnashing of the teeth and the screaming and yelling and everything. He said, what did you do? I said, I asked God to take away the gnashing of teeth. And then he looked at me with this big smile and said, well done. Welcome to the kingdom of God. You're now a Christian, Paul. That was my introduction to the, to the Christian faith. Not the best way to do it. But, it. but in retrospect, Rachel, it really got my attention. You know, God knew I would listen to a soldier. God knew my type of character. And, and I was scared into the kingdom, let's put it that way. Uh, and that was the start of my journey. Shortly after that, I went on an Alpha course uh, and found out there was some really nice scriptures in the Bible, not all the ones that he gave me. Uh, and that's, that's where my journey began. I did an Alpha course uh, in 93, you're right, with, um, and I did Alpha Holy Trinity Brompton. And me and Amanda did it together and went through it. And it's from that connection, isn't it, with the Alpha course that, that you then recognised how helpful it was to be introduced to Jesus in that way that you wanted to take Alpha 
uh, into prisons. And that's something that you've really had a kind of calling to do. It is. Uh, again, long story. It's all, it's all in the book if people want to read more. But someone on the pastoral staff, a lady called Emmy Wilson, who's an extraordinary character, heard my testimony, heard a bit about prison. I was interviewed by Nikki Gumbel. And then she got in touch with me and said, would you come on a prison trip down to Dartmoor? I said, no, thank you very much. I've been trying to stay out of prison all my life. I'm a new character. I don't, I don't know. No, I don't know. Anyway, she's very persuasive. And I went to Dartmoor Prison as a volunteer um, to talk to the chaplain about Alpha, or Emmy did, not me. Um, and it was there in that chapel when I ended up praying for someone who was very dysfunctional that uh, I led him to Christ. And as he walked away, I felt God say to me, that's what I want you to do. I want you to use your history, your experience, your life skills, everything you've gone through, even the way you met me. And I want you to tell men that they have hope. And it was driving back from Dartmoor to London that I felt God had this calling for me, but I didn't know what it was, but I just knew my life wasn't going to be the same. At that point, I was running a very fancy health club in London called Champneys. Um, you know, nice house, nice car, money in the bank. I was doing really well, actually. And I had this uncomfortable feeling, which is called the calling. And it was God just saying, come on, I've got a job for you. And so tell me about that job since you're now um, a reverend within the Church of England. You've led Alpha in prison and also you've introduced it to the army, the military as well. Yeah, well, from, the, from that encounter with the prison, I, you know, a, long, a lot of things happened. But in 97, HTB asked me if I'd come on staff to develop the prison ministry because there wasn't one really. Emmy had started something, but it needed sort of some strategy and development. So um, I came on as, a, as the prison pastor. I knew what one of those things was. You know, I wasn't quite sure what I was doing. I left a very well-paid, luxurious job to go and be this prison pastor, which I thought, what on earth have I done? And then started to go around all the prisons with Emmy and we talked to chaplains. I, I told them, you know, my life experience, what had happened to me. And Alpha started to go through the prison system and you know, to date, through some amazing volunteers and churches, we've got about 80% of the prisons running Elf, and they have done since around about 97. Um, so that's, you know, there's, I think, something like 80 or 90,000 people have gone through the course in prisons now. And then, yes, in the military, I always wanted to give something back to the military and have the opportunity to, again, take Alpha into the forces, working with chaplains and padres. Um, and develop the Alpha in there, and there's a there's a whole ministry for that now. So it's been extraordinary, really, what what God's done. You know, I honestly don't know how He's done some of it sometimes with me. And during that time, I was encouraged to go for training. So I did three years non-residential training, and um, ended up as a as a priest. How again? I'm not quite sure, Rachel. Really, but you know, God knows. God does know, doesn't He? And He obviously. You know, as you said, he spoke to you through somebody that you he knew you would listen to. Yeah. I wondered about your dad. Was there any resolution with your dad and that relationship towards the end of his life? Well, there was with, with both of them, actually. My mum my died first, like I said, in my arms. That was, um, you know, now looking back, she died with a head on my chest. She just fell asleep, really. And And I do have a peace now being a Christian because I knew what she was doing. I didn't at the time. I couldn't work out why she wanted to see me. 
Of course she wanted to see me because she wanted her son back. Of course God had spoken to her. And since then I found bits of scripture that she's had in books and things about me. And so I have a peace with my mum. I know where she is. You know, we didn't talk on this earth, but we will get a chance to speak. And amazing what, what she did to try and find her son, you know, who basically didn't want her, but she wanted me. And with my dad, it was, uh, it was a bit tough. My dad was a tough character. Um, I buried my father. He died just before his 77th um, birthday, and we had lots of conversations. He was at my ordination, uh, you know, drunk a couple of times through it, and at my priesting, he was there. Um, and I buried my father, a friend of mine, uh, Bishop Rick Thorpe, buried him, and we did that together. And then when I went through my dad's things, because he was on his own as well, when I went through them, I, I found some, um, some scriptures he'd written. I found his diary, you know, talking to Jesus and different things. And so my father became a Christian as well. So, so I have, a, I have a, an unresolved peace with them, if you know what I mean. I never chatted to him in this, in this world, um, but I know they've both become Christians, you know. It says in the Bible, you know, you can't call me Lord unless I am Lord. And that's what he'd written in his diary. You know, Lord, thank you for getting me to my 76th birthday. Lord, thank you for bringing my son back in my life. You don't call the Lord, Lord, unless he's your Lord. So I have a confidence that even though we didn't talk about it, and he was an unusual character, my dad, he knew the Lord, and I know where he is, and I know where my mum is. And, and one day we'll have a chat, I suppose. As you say, it's really incredible to look back. I mean, we've briefly talked about it, haven't we? Your your life journey and the characters that you met and the character that you were and who you are now. What what Bible verses have really kind of underpinned that, that faith foundation now? What do you rely on more than anything? Well, I guess I guess there's three that really stick out and anyone who knows me knows I'm boringly talking about them all the time the first one's that one I mentioned in Jeremiah 29 verse 11 where it says you know I have a I have a good and perfect plan for you a plan to prosper you not to harm you plan to give you hope and a future of course he was talking to Jeremiah but the Bible speaks to all of us and I do believe he has a plan for us all of us and it is to prosper us and it is to give us hope and it is to give us a future we just have to walk in it and it's sometimes us that gets in the way of God's plan. I know I have for many years. Um, another one is the one that, that Eric gave me as well, which was in Romans 5, you know, where our suffering develops perseverance and perseverance develops our character. And then through that character, we get hope. And that's a hope that does not disappoint, it says. It goes on to say, because God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And, and I really believe that, you know, the stuff I've been through, I've tried to resolve and make my peace. I have from both my ex-wives and the characters that I've been able to, you know, ask for forgiveness for, even my son. He, he, he does build our character and gives us hope that it can be different. And I suppose the last one really is, is a work-orientated one, is Matthew 25. You know, I was, I was sick, I was lonely, I was naked, I was thirsty, I was hungry, and I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And it's one of the only scriptures where I think Jesus gets really personal and puts that word, I, I was sick, I was hungry. And that little bit that resonates with me, you know, if you do these for the least of these, you do it for me. So to me, that's not a request, it's a command. 
So, so that's what keeps me going, really. It's, you know, maybe a military, maybe my boss, maybe my commanding officer, go out, feed them, water them, clothe them, visit them when they're sick, and if they're in prison, help them. And it's those three verses, I think, that, that, that keep me going. I should know more. I know that as a vicar. But it's those three that keep, keep me going, I think. And just tell me a little bit about what your, what your life looks like now from week to week so we get a picture of who you are and the work that you're actually involved in. Well, that lady I told you about, Amanda, who I met, I met her in Cyprus when I was in the army and then moved in together. We've been together for 35 years, been married for 28 of those, 27, 28 years. Um, so I have been able to achieve you know, that God's got a good plan for us. You know, I can be a faithful husband. I can be a good dad. I've got a daughter now who's 22, Phoebe, who's gorgeous. So I have been able to be those things I thought I couldn't be, um, which is extraordinary. My, my life is um, settled. It's a bit bumpy at times, mostly my fault. Um, but I work for a, an extraordinary church, Holy Trinity Brompton. I, I manage their fifth site. I started their fourth site uh, at Queensgate. I'm looking after their fifth site now with some some amazing team. Um, Delgano up near the um, Renville Tower area where the fire was. Um, I'm looking after that on Sundays. We're all getting back together again, trying now with the COVID stuff. And my week, it's just very varied. It's either prisons, it's military, uh, and it's church, it's speaking events. And um, it's working through this book, really, you know, interviews like this, which is a fantastic opportunity to say to men and women that there's hope no matter where you are or what you've done or how low you think you've fallen. There's a piece in Deuteronomy where it said God's hands can just pick you up if we allow him. And, and that's my hope, really, with, with all these things, is that people will find um, hope out of despair, really, because there's so much of that at the moment. But there's so much hope as well that we can have. And that's all we have time for on The Profile this week. Please do join us again next time.